The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. Welcome to True Restoration on the Restoration Radio Network. I am your host, Stephen Heiner, and I'm joined today by His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolman. How are you, Your Excellency? I'm well, thank you, Stephen, and yourself? I'm I'm well. I'm good. As I was telling you as we were talking about this show over uh, the last week or two, I'm I'm surprised to find out, and, and this is just my ignorance here, that September is actually the month of Our Lady, not May, uh, by... By finding out all these Marian feasts, and um, and as I've talked to you a bit about it, I've, I'm excited to, to learn a little bit more and, and see how everything is interconnected. But uh, oh, oh, yeah, before we I, get in, I'm... but before we get into that, I know that you'll want to start us with a prayer. I, I would thank you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. This is one of the antiphons of the Vespers of the first of Our Lady's feasts in September, her Nativity. Virgin Mother of God, thy birth brought joy to all the world. For out of thee arose the Son of Justice, Christ our God, who taking off the curse gave blessing, and defeating death bestowed upon us everlasting life. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, Your Excellency, we, as, I, as I said, uh, as we talked about this as we were getting ready, I didn't really realize, um, you know, where we were in September. I suppose part of recognizing September, I think, especially today as Americans, September 11th has particular connotations for us, but actually September 11th has particular connotations for Catholics uh, historically, Indeed, and I think a lot of people yeah. a lot of people don't know about that. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, in fact, uh, that's one of the things uh, I, I want to look at uh, with you today, as we talk about September being truly Mar- Mary's month. That is to say, it was on September 11th that the the great Polish king uh, Jan Sobieski. Uh, completed his forced march, he and his, his his soldiers, his army, from Poland all the way to the hills overlooking Vienna. This is in September of 1683. The Turks had for a long time already besieged Vienna, and the idea was that if Vienna would fall, so would the rest of uh, Christian Europe fall to the to the Mohammedans. He he arrived there. And of course, it was a forced march, and they, they were they were they were tired. But he dedicated himself on the the night before the battle, the night of nine eleven, if you will, to to prayer. And in the morning, having assisted at mass, he said to his men, uh, "Let us now march on the enemy with entire confidence in the protection of heaven, under the assured protection of the Blessed Virgin." And that confidence did not fail him. Now, what most people don't know is that 9-11 is as well, uh, 9-11, 9-12, you have to always associate the two together, is as well, and first of all, one of the first 
of the Rosary Victories at Moret in Spain with uh, St. Dominic and the glorious um, Simon de Montfort. So uh, it's, it's a battle against Albigensians. And um, St. Uh, Dominic offers Mass, the, the leader of the, of the armies, uh, Simon de, de, de Montfort, serves the Mass, and the soldiers are all uh, in battle array. They're all on their, their, their horses, in, 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 uh, all filed up in, in, in proper military regiments, as piously uh, in spirit, assisting at the Mass, it said, within a rather small chapel. And it was only after the Mass that uh, St. Dominic and, uh, and de Montfort send the soldiers forth to win a great victory against, uh, against um, the, the Albigensian heretics, who also, in their own way, with their terrific anti-life heresy, wanted to destroy Christendom. So, 9-11, 9-12, these are, these are days of victory for, for the Catholic Church, and they're some of the jewels in Mary's mantle, the mantle that adorns out of the twelve, that which is liturgically and uh, historically, her month, the, uh, the, the old Roman seventh month of the year. This is, this is the month of Mary and the month of victory. Now, if you'll permit me, I see another mm, connection here that makes this uh, radio show being recorded on 9-11 to be particularly appropriate. It's because just yesterday, in Rome, the old heretic or anti-pope Francis admonished the, his followers, the followers of the conciliar church, against what he called triumphalism. And of course, you can't talk about church history. You can't talk about the mother of God. You can't honor her feasts in September or any time of the year without this wonderful fragrance and exaltation of triumph. These are days of, not defeat, uh, not of groveling, uh, bargaining, but of, uh, but of real, real Catholic triumph. So the, the term triumphalism was coined during the Council, 63-64 is when it makes its first uh, appearance in the dictionary, and it was coined specifically against traditional Catholics or true Catholics, that is to say, those who believe that there's only one true religion, those who believe that this one true faith will triumph in the end, and those who express that belief, uh, this, that philosophy of life, if you will, in the way they, they look at things, the way they worship, uh, the way they order their lives, uh, the ornamentation of their churches, their music, everything uh, bespeaks um, the Christus Vincit, Christus Regnat, Christus Imperat, of, of of the ancient Carolingian praises. That's uh, that's our faith. So this this man Francis is is of course very much against it, and he he accuses actually goes so far to dare to accuse Catholics who are by nature triumphalists, if you will, because the triumph is ours of not believing in our Lord's resurrection, which has got to be one of the most bold faced. Uh, uh, calumnies that's ever been directed against Catholics, but there you have it. That's the measure of the man. That's what's going on right now in Rome. But um, with your permission, we we shouldn't talk about Francis. That's a disgusting topic. <laughs> we should talk rather about our our Catholic history and and and. Uh, well, really, I was, I was, was going to say, you're going to say. I mean, when you think about triumphalism, I was thinking about your yeah. last show, um, your last devotion show, and I thought, well, goodness, probably. The Angelus is probably triumphalistic in their idea. Oh, absolutely. The, the idea of, of ringing bells and calling on the world to stop and pray 
The only one who's allowed to do that now is the Mohammedan. <laughs> Christians aren't allowed to do that. The ringing of bells and, and making traffic stop, as it were. No, no, that's, that's, that's not our place to do that at all. We should wait for our Mohammedan brethren and the loudspeaker, uh, the Muzain, and then we should um, make room as they, as they do their, their prostrations towards Mecca. So, uh, oh yeah, that's... Uh, very, very much so. That's that's certainly the, uh, the you know the, the spirit of things. So, um, where do we get the idea that that uh, September? You said it correctly, Stephen. September is Mary's month, far more than May. M- May is Mary's month. You know, actually came about. Oh, you have to give the Jesuits their due. It's the Jesuits who did that. It was a Jesuit, you know, um, a Jesuit uh, student chaplain, in effect. And because of the much vaunted spring fever uh, and the desire to, then the part of this good priest, to in, instill fervor in, in the young men in his school or in his sodality, he came up with the idea. It was the first one, really, to consecrate May uh, to to honor Our Lady with the litany or with the rosary, with processions every evening, with devotions. And then it was so popular that it just it, it made sense. It, it filled a need, and it, it spread throughout the world. But, you know, the idea of um, May, if I may say so, as, uh, as a Marian month, which is absolutely firmly established in our minds and in our mentalities, is very recent. I was reading about um, Monsignor Macbeth, who was the, uh, the assistant to uh, uh, Monsignor or Bishop Lamy, the first bishop of Santa Fe, and later on Macbeth went to Denver. He became the first bishop of Denver. He was a priest right in that era after the Concordat with Napoleon, early 19th century um, France. Well, he, as a very zealous, devo- de- devoted young priest, wanted to start the observance of, the, of Marian devotions during May in his parish. And he had an old-time priest from before the Revolution who had survived, who was his pastor. And his pastor said, nothing doing. That's an innovation. I'm not interested in that. I don't want any changes. <laughs> Interesting. But he was he's very humble about it, and he persevered in prayer, and he dared to ask a second time. And the pastor was moved by grace and, and by the demeanor of the young priest, and he gave his permission. But that was just the beginning of the 19th century that that became established. But far more ancient is the liturgical approach uh, to, to, uh, to understand that September is Mary's month. Uh, if, if you just follow, uh, follow your day, follow your life with the Missal, with the may, aid maybe of a, of, a, of a good commentary, for example, um, Dom Garanger's The Liturgical Year, which after all, fed and, and formed uh, saints. I think, I think particularly the little flower saint, Therese of this year. She, was, uh, she listened every, every evening as a child to her father, reading to her and her sisters from this liturgical commentary. And he very much so gives Catholic history as a compendium of everything you need. But let this be another push for our Catholics today to have a liturgical spirituality. When you have a liturgical spirituality, you are by definition almost uh, triumphalistic. That is to say, you're a Catholic. You're a Catholic. So if you look at the sacred liturgy, we say, wait a minute, September, there are all these feast days of Mary. There was no universal feast of Mary until 
what we call the last feast. It's the last feast that we accept being added to the Roman Missal. That is to say, the Queenship of Mary from May 31st by in the last years of the reign of the last Pope, Pius Twelfth. But September is full of feast days of Mary. It begins with her nativity on September 8th, this past Sunday. And then we have the feast day of the Most Holy Name of Mary, September the 12th. And then we have on the 15th the feast day of her seven sorrows. And then finally, we have the feast day of Our Lady of Ransom or of Mercy on uh, September the 24th. September is the month of Mary's birth and the month of Mary's death. It is um, the month of some, as we've been saying, some of her greatest victories historically. And um, it is the month of devotions which are beloved to her and most useful for us because she's our mother. She wants us to practice these devotions so that she may help us. Some of these devotions are almost unknown to us today because fashions change in, in these matters. For example, the devotion to the infancy of Mary. That's uh, very, very Italian, but it's also Spanish and South American, Latin, you might say. Uh, Maria Bambina, they call it the baby Mary. But that's very pleasing to Our Lady that we should honor her infancy, even as our Lord wants his infancy honored. And then the devotion to the seven sorrows, which is a, a great devotion, which is, uh, thank God, still very well known and very practiced uh, throughout the Church today. Uh, and then the devotion to Mary's name, and the power and the sweetness, the strength, uh, the spiritual significance of Mary's name. Uh, and then the devotion, finally, to Our Lady of of ransom, the, the remembrance, really it's this, the remembrance that Mary is our mother, and she, when we're in a pinch, when we're enslaved, when we're fallen very, very far from her son, she will not abandon us. She will take the initiative to rescue us, and she'll inspire others. She'll use even seemingly unworthy men, maybe, to, 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 do, something, to do something great for God's glory, and for man's salvation. And it's also interesting to see how the dates are spread out. It isn't as if all of these are together, but that, again, goes back to not only providence, but probably the Church's wisdom in, in making sure that you wouldn't have all of these feasts up against each other, but all throughout the month are just sort of sprinkled. Yes, there's sort of a, well, there's a historical reason for each, the date of each one of those feasts. Obviously, the Nativity of, of Our Lady is nine months from the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady, and the Seven Sorrows falls on the octave or the eighth day of her feast. The Seven Sorrows in September was a, it was originally a feast of the Servite Order. That's a small order that's not too well known today. It gave at least one Good priest uh, to the to the uh, traditional movement in in America that I know of. Actually, many years wasn't was in Colorado, uh, and then later I moved to Texas. Uh, the the Servites were founded by Our Lady herself in in Florence during the, during the Middle Ages to promote devotion to her her sorrows, and the uh, the Mass and the Divine Office that we have on September fifteenth are actually from the Servite. Mythal. They are their proper masses of the church borrow then and then gave to everybody to keep this feast. Then, uh, of course, the 12th, That's a, the reason for that is simply this is a historical anniversary, the 11th and the 12th of September. These are historical anniversaries of great Marian victories and great rosary 
victories. And uh, the 24th uh, finally commemorates another another a victory, a victory of, of mercy. And this has a wonderful story there. This is when uh, the 24th of, of uh, September is when Our Lady appeared to three to three men to ask them to found uh, an order for the ransoming and eventual release of Christians who were kidnapped by pirates. Basically, the the drama that went on very noticeably in around, off the coast of Somalia a few years ago, which is still going on for uh, wherever the Mohammedans reign, then Westerners unfortunately not necessarily Christians anymore, but Westerners will fall into their hands and they'll be kidnapped by uh, by the Mohammedans. And in fact, I was just reading the New York Times a week or two ago about some man who I presume, I presume just to better his, his, his condition and to attempt to keep his, to save his life, officially converted. He became a Mohammedan, uh, some Westerner, just to, to please his captors. Uh, so it, it's still, that's still the same drama. Our Lady is worried about her children falling into temptation of apostasy from the faith, which is eternal death. And so she asked these these three great men to um, to found an order. Well, do you think that we should should we sort of try to proceed here logically for a change? <laughs> Stephen? So maybe <laughs> no, I think that's a, it's a great sur- it's a great survey you've, you've given your Excellency. So we've got a broad overview from from ten thousand feet. Now you can take us specifically to to what you'd like. Sure. Okay. Well, so then the first thing we want to speak about is, um, uh, well, a little bit more about a little bit more about September. Um, and September. Did you know that the Anglo-Saxons, the Anglo-Saxons who then you know, invaded uh, the British Isles and drove the Celtic and the Celtic Christians back into what is today Wales, when they were converted? They named this month, our month of September, Halegmonath, which is Old Saxon for Holy Month, because it is so crowded, this month of September is, with holy days. Uh, the first that falls, of course, is the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, but then there's also Holy Cross Day, which we keep on, on Saturday the, the, this year, the, the, the 14th of September, and then finally the Great Michaelmas, or the dedication of St. Michael the Archangel. And since the, uh, the, the, the Saxons renamed this month, uh, it's, it's now, as, as, we, as we've been saying, it's peppered with other delightful and beautiful feast days of of Our Lady. This is what, um, let me read you something from Dom Granger about, um, about September, the, the month in which Our Lady was born, according to, the, according to the old law. It was the sabbatical month, the first of the civil year, the seventh of the sacred cycle, the month of Tishri, which begins the repose of each seventh year, and in which is announced the holy year of Jubilee, the most joyous of months with its solemn neomania, or new moons, celebrated with trumpets and singing. It's a feast of tabernacles and the commemoration of the completion of Solomon's temple. In the heavens, the sun, in his passage through the zodiac, has left the sign of Leo and entered that of Virgo. On earth, two obscure descendants of David, Joachim and Anne, are thanking God for having blessed their long barren union. I think that's a very beautiful summary of the, of the Old Testament setting 
that the Holy Ghost chose to bring the Virgin Mary uh, into this world, the celebration uh, for which we celebrate now as her uh, nativity. Well, the, so the first and the greatest of the Marian feasts that mark um, this month to be the premier month of the Mother of God is that of her nativity. Some authors say that goes back to the to the Greeks, and there's a there's a uh, certain Saint Andrew of Crete who 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 gave beautiful sermons honoring Our Lady's nativity in the seventh mm-hmm. century. But Dom Guéranger, of course, being a loyal Frenchman, says that well actually it comes from France. So about the year four, which can't surprise us, about the year four fifty, he says, uh, Our Lady uh, is supposed to have um, appeared to um, a French bishop, and then to ask, to have asked them for the feast day. Uh, and that was at Anvers in France. And then uh, we go from there maybe to Chartres, and the, the Flaubert, who was the bishop of Chartres, and the, the antiphons and the responsories that he wrote that are still in the Roman office for Our Lady's Nativity. So it seems to have a, a very early and a very French connection, the celebration of Our Lady's Nativity. Meanwhile, in Rome, you you see it appearing in Rome a little bit later on as one of the great feast days of Mary, along with her purification, her annunciation, her assumption, is her nativity. Each one of these feast days used to be celebrated the way we still keep her purification with a a penitential procession to start with in the morning, uh, holding candles. And uh, it was barefoot. It was a barefoot procession. So that obviously in the streets of old Rome, that would be that would be penance. And at the end of it, then the Pope would get his feet washed, uh, and uh, then he would prepare himself for the Holy Mass. Um, and that went on. Interesting story, Stephen. This went on until the the Babylonian captivity, as as we call it, of of the papacy when the the papacy was moved from Rome to Avignon in southern France, in Provence. Um, then, then, since the Pope, for so many years, was no longer in Rome, many of these liturgical customs that were very ancient died out. But the um, towards the end of this terrible captivity and the uh, and the schism, the Great Western Schism, to which it uh, it, uh, it gave rise, uh, the um, popes um, promised. That should things be should things be regularized in the church and the schism come to an end and the papacy be properly restored, that they would uh, honor Our Lady with gratitude by giving her nativity an octave, and that's how we get the octave. An octave is an eight-day celebration of a feast. It's a very it's a strong characteristic of the traditional Catholic liturgy as opposed to the neo-modernist one, say, in the 1962 Missal of uh, John the 23rd. That's how we get the octave. It's, it's a very simple octave. Literally, it's called a simple octave. It uh, doesn't have so many liturgical rites or privileges, but it's there on, on paper, and, um, there, and then it leads us, this octave does, to the, the beautiful feast of Mary's holy name in, um, uh, on, on September the 12th, and then, then, then to her octave day of the, of the sorrows of uh, Our Lady. So that's uh, something about the nativity of, of the Blessed Virgin Mary. There's um, a custom which is uh, represented in the Roman ritual for uh, because this is the, the time for preparing the fields 
for the winter wheat. So there is a customary blessing for seeds and then for seedlings. So at our church, St. Gertrude the Great, we've always observed this with a procession, hymns and prayers in honor of Our Lady. And then we bless little little plants. We, we fixed finally on pansies, and pansy is an interesting story. The, the word pansy itself sometimes has a somewhat derogatory connotation, but pansies are tough little little flowers. In our climate, we're, we're in Cincinnati in the Ohio Valley, uh, uh, a pansy uh, will, uh, if, if planted in the spring, in the fall rather, with a little luck in September, it will last all winter long, even though it looks like a very, very fragile plant, and will bloom again uh, and bloom very beautifully all spring long until the hot weather comes. So it's, it's, it's a symbol. We always see this as a symbol of our, a new season, a new school year being devoted to Our Lady. And with Our Lady's help, we're, we're awfully weak and we're awfully fragile. But we'll, we'll make it through the winter wind and the, and the cold and the snow and the ice and everything to, to bloom again in the springtime. So it's a way of symbolizing entering into the liturgical year, the new season, with our Blessed Mother and, and this, this idea of wanting to stay with her. Seeds are blessed, too, in honor of Our Lady on September the 8th. And as I say, I think this is what the, the, the meaning of that is. Um, then in some places, it's customary, too, you'll see a depiction on the holy card, or actually uh, a live one, of uh, a stylized baby Mary in a little sort of a cradle. That's the shrine that's, uh, that's appropriate for the day. And as I say, it's a devotion that Our Lady, by, in private revelation, has made known is, is most pleasing to her, that we should honor uh, the Mother of God in that way. I think it's interesting uh, that you bring a, a, season, a seasonality or a seasonal look, Your Excellency, because I, I'm, I'm a warm weather person, so I'm not particularly excited about winter myself. But mm-hmm. uh, there's also sort of a promise here from Our Lady that you know we're we're going to go through this winter. We're we're but out of that and in that relation to that ancient pagan feast, but that that was overtaken by Christianity, where our Lord is the the sun that comes forward. Yes. That. Yes, on the other side of this winter, there will be a great thing, and, and in September we can think about it, and, and we can, can, you could say, preview it, get ready for it, and, and, and take some consolation. Yes, and so, in a sense, the, uh, the Old Testament's New Year celebration, which, uh, the, uh, which the Jews of today have lapsed into a kind of a of a true superstitious paganism almost. Very little of the Old Testament is left in their religion today. It has to be noted. But um, the the church is the true heir to the Old Testament. And so she keeps, this is one of the ways in which she preserves the memory that September used to be the month of the new year. Because it is for us still the month of the new year in the sense we say the academic year and the uh, Oh, for example, like the French make a big deal it's in September that all the books are published. And so uh, there's sort of like a new intellectual year, if you will. They call it the rentrée, uh, uh, the, the, the return to, to classes and the end of vacation. So it is, for most people, even because of the change of seasons, it's, uh, it, it's, an, it's a new year. And the, and the Church beautifully keeps this and then illustrates it and, uh, with these devotions. Uh, these liturgical observances, and then and then the seasonal ones too. So it's not only for children, but even for adults. The other way in which this is observed, and I think we spoke about this before, is by means of the Ember Days. 
And so yes. the Ember Day Masses, right, which we will have next week um, this year, the Ember Day Masses uh, actually in September actually commemorate the different um, Old Testament holidays of the Feast of Tabernacles, of the, of the New Year itself, and also of the Day of Atonement. But, and so the... Uh, Speaking of the of the seasons of the year, and that being sort of a tie-in, Stephen, I hope, I sometimes I do feel sorry for people that don't have four seasons, and I worry about people that live in in the wrong part of the world liturgically. <laughs> <laughs> I worry about our Australians and our South Americans, to tell you the truth. They do their best, and God love them, but they're really not meant to be living there. I don't think because everything <laughs> is wrong. <laughs> So right now it's spring for them in Australia. They're having spring fires, and and it's spring in uh, in South America, and it's just not right because none of the liturgy makes any sense. Well, obviously with the pious imagination, you can cover to a to to, to a certain degree, but it's uh, it's it's so much easier for us. And how blessed are we uh, in the West, generically the West, uh, the, obviously the Northwest in a sense, to to be able to keep these feasts as they. With all of the calendar and all of the earth and all of the sky connections, if you will, that the Holy Ghost wills in, in order to get the point across to us, to remind us, so that grace is always sanctifying nature and claiming nature and harnessing nature to make nature sort of the horse that's going to carry our carriage up to heaven again. That's that's the beauty of the of the Catholic liturgy and the Catholic approach to life. Well, that's very that's very triumphalist of you, Your Excellency. It, it is rather, that. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was I was in Australia last Christmas, as you know. A, a lot of people don't know that uh, when we started our season and we did the chair of Saint Peter all those months ago to start uh, season two, that I was in Australia. Uh, when we did that show, and it really, you're you're right. I, and I, when I say it doesn't feel like Christmas, I, I think well because I've spent so many years here in America, um, well, with what we're used to. But in a certain sense, it, it, it's it is it is a bit of a tragedy that they they don't in that hemisphere you can't experience the the liturgy how it ties together uh, seasonally. But that's and and again, it's just a, a sort of beautiful tie-in. It's obviously not necessary for salvation. But it is no, something no, that, no. that that that's nice. It, it certainly is. It certainly is, uh, and it's it's very it's very helpful, particularly for well, it's helpful for children, but it's helpful for everybody because everyone everyone is affected by the weather and affected by the seasons of the year, and when all of this comes together, as as it does in a Catholic liturgical perspective. Why that's so much help for us, essentially, to, to sanctify ourselves and essentially to save our souls. And of course, that's the Blessed Mother's great work too. That's why she often we even come to this earth to request a particular feast or devotion or to intervene in history for uh, for our sake. So, before you move on, Your Excellency, I just want to let people know that they can leave us questions. Today. You're listening to True Restoration on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner, along with His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, uh, who is in Westchester, Ohio today, and is talking about the different Marian feasts and about September, which is truly Our Lady's Month, more so than May. Uh, if you have questions, feel free to give us a call. We're at 949-272-9417. No, it's a bit early in the morning for some. Um, and uh, if you're on Twitter, 
you prefer to send us questions that way, we're at True Restoration. Simply submit your questions to us there and uh, about anything about this month, about Our Lady, about these feet, and we'll do our best to answer them. So, Your Excellency, what's, uh, what, which feast would you like to speak about next? Well, the, um, as I say, the, the feast day of the Nativity of Mary is, uh, um, is possessed of an octave, an eight-day celebration. And our, our audience will remember that the, the mystical number of eight symbolizes eternity. When the Church keeps the feast for eight days on earth, she is symbolizing her desire to keep this feast with the angels in heaven for all eternity, that beautiful scene of worship that St. John sees in the book of the Apocalypse. Is, is sort of foretold by these feasts. So, the next one that we that we go to is the feast day of the um, most holy name of Mary. In all probability, this feast day begins not in France, but in Spain, a place called Cuenca, at about the beginning of the 16th century. And what's so glorious, triumphalistic, and utterly unapologetically Marian is that the Feast of the Holy Name of Mary was established as a feast day and in the Missal before the feast day of the Holy Name of Jesus. And that shows how much God desires that there should be this devotion to Mary, that that she's the neck, as the fathers say, of the mystical body of Christ. Everything passes through her. Even our true, true Catholics who are left don't because of the cultural considerations and the fact that it's been 50 years since the changes in modernism and we don't we don't significant we don't sufficiently realize the glories of the mother of god and her importance in the divine plan that's why we need these feast days we need these constant reminders we need sermons and hymns and devotions and shrines and family observances to to get the point across about the importance of the mother of god in god's plan in God's plan, uh, she is the one who is ultimately more, I think it's Father Faber that says this, more terrible to the devil than even God himself. Because uh, you might say, God the devil can bear. But Mary, this humble handmaid, a human being, a, hu- uh, a human person, not a divine person, a human person, that that she should be the one who crushes his head. Wow, he can't bear that. He absolutely cannot bear that. So uh, we can never exalt or glorify Our Lady enough. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that actually uh, the feast day of the Holy Name of Mary came into the Missal, starting in Spain, 16th century, before the Franciscans, who were the great, along with the Dominicans, they were the great promoters of the devotion to the Holy Name of Jesus, were able to get that feast day in the Missal. But there's a reason for that, and the reason is the Church is um, the Roman. It's a a characteristic of the Roman Church, uh, her innate conservatism. Whereas, you might say, in the hinterland, Spain, certainly France, and Byzantium in the East, uh, there will be this this flowering of all of these wondrous and uh, elaborate devotions and liturgies and so forth. Rome is very, very sober always in her approach to things, someplace between sober maybe and austere. And the, the, the Feast of the Holy Name was refused for a long time because it was considered like the month of Mary, as we spoke of earlier. It was considered an innovation and then an unnecessary one 
because January 1st, the, uh, the circumcision, the octave day of, of the nativity, was considered as, the, as a sufficient commemoration of the holy name of Jesus, because in our Lord's circumcision, he, of course, received as we have in the Gospel. He received his holy name of Jesus, the, the, the Savior. It's a bit like the, uh, the Feast Day of the Trinity. For a long time, uh, the Feast Day of the Trinity was kept uh, in, in other countries, but was never kept uh, in Rome or put on the, the, the Roman calendar for the simple reason that the pontiffs, the popes, considered, well, every Sunday is a feast day of the Trinity. So to have a specific feast would not be necessary. But finally, due to, again, interesting historical considerations and maybe, and certainly divine inspiration, that devotion, uh, that devotion found its place in the, in the pages of the, uh, of, of, of the Roman Missal and on our calendar. So it's, it's a little bit the same thing with some of these, uh, some of these feast days of the, uh, of the Blessed Mother. Interesting to note that our great saint, we feel that, that he's ours, St. Pius V, he removed the feast day of the Holy Name of Mary in his reform of the Roman calendar. And that's very sort of Pius V, isn't it? Because he was an austere Dominican. And he was an inquisitor, and he was a no-nonsense kind of a man. And this, what he viewed, you know, from a very conservative Roman liturgical perspective, as the excessive flowering of these different devotions, he had no room for. So he, 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 he was the one. Even though he was so devoted to Our Lady, there's probably a lesson here. Who removed the feast day of the um, Holy Name of Mary, and he also removed the feast day of the Presentation, but not for long. Our Lady wanted those feasts. And other popes came shortly thereafter to restore those feast days to the uh, to the Roman calendar and, and uh, mm. to the Missal. But uh, this this restoration takes place because of this wonderful divine intervention with um, during the pontificate of, of uh, Innocent the Eleventh, the year 1683, the hills overlooking Vienna and uh, this very great victory that takes place. Uh, an interesting side note I've been thinking of, Stephen, I, I know you're a monarchist, and so this is something for you, <laughs> okay. about, about Jan Sobieski, who uh, I, I visited his tomb at the crypt of the cathedral in Krakow once with uh, our priest, I say our priest, uh, there's a good uh, priest who says a good mass in um, his Polish father in Krakow, Father uh, Raphael Tritek is his name. Um, so, and as we were visiting his tomb, he mentioned to me, the, priest, the Polish priest did, you know, he was a Freemason. <laughs> and he was a Freemason, but in the sense of what Father Kelly used to call the, the Blue Lodge Freemasons, that is to say that it was at, during the time of his life, the 17th century, it was almost universal. Uh, that people, that men of power and influence, certainly in the monarchy, the nobility should be Freemasons. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was a fashionable thing. And even though some of the condemnations, uh, the very strict encyclicals, had already been issued in Rome, there was a strong cultural force. So obviously, this is a man who uh, had mixed motives, shall we say, in his Freemasonry. Uh, perhaps a little bit like we, we could view Sobieski, this great Polish king, very devoted to Our Lady. We could view and an instrument of God's mercy, 
against the Mohammedans. We could view him maybe a little bit as Mozart. You know, you always start, start your programs with a bit of Mozart, and you do well to do so. But, of course, he was a Mason, too. He belonged to, mm-hmm. a, to sort of a church lodge. Um, and so that's, that's, maybe, that's maybe something for another show. But I mention this to show how God works, and specifically to show how the mother of God works. I see an echo of that with another king, because if I say king, you would think of crown and the triumphalism of monarchy and some glorious monarchs of the past, but you could just as well think of the sewer of immorality that is the typical royal court, and all of these kings who should have been glorious Catholic monarchs and champions, but who Solomon-like fell because of women. Think of the sun king himself, Louis XIV, uh, and the, the horrible ruin that he brought upon France and upon all of Christendom, because, uh, as the French would say, he wasn't, he wasn't up to it. He wasn't up to the measure of things. Um, uh, the, the king that I'm thinking of now is the king who is so closely connected with Our Lady's great work of mercy, Our Lady of Ransom, September the 24th, James of Aragon. James of Aragon was a great man in many respects. Our Lady deigned to choose him as the, as the man of the hour, the king who would give the money and the arms and the prestige necessary to get her order for the ransoming of captives off the ground. He had as his confessor uh, the Dominican Master General, the great canonist and, and confessor, St. Um, Raymond of Penafort. Feasts in January, um, uh, but he was a, he was an immoral man, and so at some point, you know the story that Saint Raymond. This is after the vision on the twenty fourth of September, given to these three men at night, including Saint Peter Nolasco, who was a layman and a knight. Uh, well, after the vision, Saint uh, Raymond of Penafort is is traveling to see the king of uh, the king of Aragon, uh, James, and he's on the island of Mallorca. And he discovers that the king is, shall we say, somewhat distracted. He's distracted by the presence of a floozy, one of his probably many royal mistresses, than whom he's brought with him to the holiday capital of Mallorca. And so he's got other things on his mind. When the saint finds that out, he's furious. And he says, you go. You get rid of this woman. And if you don't get rid of her then I'm leaving, and the king rises up on the, on the, full, the full power of his, of his royal heritage and throne and blood, and he says, oh, no, you don't. And he, he, told, he, he announced that, that anyone who enabled uh, Raymond to leave the island would be put to death, and that's the origin of the story of how Our Lady worked a miracle in, in the name of purity, how he goes down to the seashore, he whips off his black Dominican cloak, says a prayer, blesses the sea, steps on it, becomes a kind of a, a, kind of a raft or a canoe almost, or, or, or one of those things they use for some of those modern sports, I suppose. It must have looked very much like <laughs> that. Right. Windsurfing, maybe? Yes, that's right, something like that. And in, then there's a precise time given, I think it was either three hours or six hours, he's on the mainland. And then he's enabled to walk from the shore to Barcelona, and how long that was, and to pass through the closed doors, the locked doors of the monastery, because by now it's, it's after Compline, and there's the curfew, the, the, the lights are out, and, and to get back to his own room. So Our Lady uses uh, men... She doesn't only use saints. Our Lady wants all of us to be saints, but Our Lady uses sinners, so she may very well use you and me, too, 
for her great purposes. But she even deigns to use someone who's officially a Freemason and even deigns to use someone who is uh, uh, a public sinner. Uh, living in, in a scandalous relationship with a woman that's not his wife, to achieve her purposes, and then you've you've got to believe in in the in, in the working out of things that these men were themselves. I don't know the whole of their stories. I'm sure it would make an interesting study. Were themselves touched by that proximity to Our Lady, and um, shall we say regulated or fixed up, cleaned up the the, the some of the elements of their own lives which were not. Uh, not pleasing to heaven. So, uh, Jan Sobieski, interesting. But what a, what a, what a great man he was, what, what vision he had. He was a real king in the sense that he knew it was not just a question of his own kingdom of Poland, but it was a question of all of Christian Europe, and that if, um, if Vienna fell, Poland would fall in due time. And he knew that it was not just a matter of arms, that he had to beseech Our Lady to give him the victory. Um, I remember visiting you know, Vienna. Yeah, I'm thinking about you speaking about the kings, and I can't help but reflect on current events and the whole, uh, you know, drumbeat war again, and and how mm-hmm. the different leaders of different nations are dealing with these modern pygmies uh, who, right. Right. who you say consult their parliament or consult their their people, but. Uh, obviously, I, I, you and I are not advocates of going of going to war with Syria. We know it's Indeed, a sort of uh, um, fake um, fake crisis that's been drummed up. But that being said, um, the difference in, in what you're talking about here with beseeching Our Lady with prayer is that the idea of a of a of a leader, a monarch, even you could say a prime minister in the modern parlance, praying mm-hmm. and then saying, "This is how I will lead my country." Not, yes. I'm going to go. Yeah. I'm going to go ask you people for your opinion because I need your approval before making a decision. It would, you know, it's completely. That's a very modern concept, but it's it's thoroughly uh, antithetical to the spirit that you're talking about here with these great kings and, and how they would make their decisions. Sure. Uh, obviously, they would have their ministers, and obviously, they would have their their reports and their facts. But uh, these the great kings made their decision on their knees. With God, they were truly anointed by God, and as, as the Catholic Church understands uh, the anointed monarchy from above for all of their human faults and failings, and, and as you say, they didn't. They didn't look merely to the consent of the governed. Oh no, they they looked to see what was God's will, and you could see grace operating in a man like Sobieski. Why wasn't he as narrow-minded and as xenophobic as the, forgive me, wretched French kings? who uh, thought only of their own kingdom and never thought of the good of Christendom and then brought mm. such a tragedy upon themselves and upon all the world. Why did he have that large heart? Uh, oh, that has to be from a devotion to Our Lady. And that has to be because he truly was a king. He was truly and, and, and the, truly was, he was worthy of his anointing and his delmatic and his crown that, that, that he had received. And uh, James of Aragon as well, for all of his arrogance, he 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 was um, he he was worthy in that sense. So yeah, you're right. What a what a different world that is. Of course, now even sometimes I think sometimes you know they they tell these stories of the American of our American 
pontifex as our high priests in the white in the white house you know that they uh, beginning with i suppose with george washington you know they they knelt down at valley forge or they they prayed and then but i think a lot of that truly is american mythology and i'm afraid it just simply would not fit as it were into the same boat as these is these these real the true kings the the, the real kings that, that we have to talk about well, yes. Yeah, so if you study history, if you study George Washington, that's not a very believable narrative. No, <laughs> believable no, it, narrative it, that he did that. Um, some, some, some people even want to make of uh, that, that uh, anoint, uh, anoint Lincoln, if you can believe it, in, in, in that same way, and that's just way too much of a stretch. But, and, um, and, that, and that's a whole other show too. Maybe we'll, we'll get to that sometime. Yeah, you know, that's right. That, that would be sometime. Yes, that would be interesting. So, yeah. so you have the king. Oh, go ahead. Yes. I was going to say it's and and I, I probably this is a segue into something else. So if you if you want, we can we can stay on this topic. But I, I was going to say that one of the curiosities for me about Catholicism is the fact that we would have a feast that would celebrate sorrow. We think about the the sorrows of Our Lady. It's it, it, it's very peculiar when you're trying to explain this to an outsider, and they might say, okay, I understand a feast day. That's where you get holidays, and we're going to party, and I get that. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, when you explain that, okay, well, we have a feast that, that celebrates these sorrows, and uh, it, it it just doesn't compute. It, it's hard to, for them to understand. And I think sometimes maybe even for some Catholics to, to see the importance of, um, how can we say this, of, of, of immersing ourselves in these sorrows to appreciate, you know, what Our Lady's perspective is, because it's pretty easy to forget, right? We We think about the good times. We don't usually want to meditate on the bad times. Yes, we're the we're the we're the, we're the good time Charlies, and uh, so again, Mary in her mercy comes down to this earth, and she you know gives out the black robes to the the seven laymen in, in Florence, in medieval Florence, and said, you know, meditate on my sorrows, practice this devotion. This is going to be the key towards healing the horrible schism which which just shook Italy during the greatest of centuries, you know, thirteenth greatest of centuries, but you got the Gilfs, the Gelfs. The, the papal party versus the Ghibellines, the uh, those who follow the wretched German Roman Emperor, uh, and then all of the all of the horrible effects and public immorality on the rest that come when you have these internecine wars, these schisms and splits and divisions. And then Our Lady says, "This is the solution. Here, you wear black, fast, pray, meditate. My seven sorrows, uh, my compassion. How how, how glorious." So, but actually, if you think about it, what is Our Lady doing except saying, um, "Look at, look, see the divine plan. Look at me. Look at my Son, and then l- look at thyself. Look at your, look at your own life. See the divine plan. That is to say, that the closer that you come to God, the more is sorrow necessary, and the longer you live, the more is sorrow inevitable." Everyone is going to have his, no more than, but he will have certainly his fair share, his full share of sorrow, according to the God's providence, exactly what we need to keep us on the, the straight and narrow, and eventually, one day, to uh, save our own souls. So sorrow, but that's, so, I mean, that's why this feast day is so important, uh, and that's why it's so sad that these feast days get shuffled back. Um, it's interesting to note in the liturgical history that these feast days, Stephen, were established on a Sunday. And I know I've talked about that with you before. 
I think it's a very important pastoral or consideration for the sake of the people that um, the Feast of the Holy Name of Mary was the Sunday within the octave, that is to say, after uh, the 8th of September, Our Lady's birthday. And then the Feast Day of the Seven Sorrows was the Sunday after that. Why a Sunday? So that the people who get in on these celebrations, especially as we go towards modern time, then uh, there is less and less of a tendency to keep the feast date when it falls during the week, or even a possibility. People are so busy, they're working, and they lead secular lives. Uh, and they have, to, they have to attempt once a week to give, to render to God what is God, because Caesar is waiting to get everything else. Um, St. Pius X, curiously enough, he was one who reformed the Roman breviary and missal uh, during his reign a hundred years ago uh, because this, the ancient, very beautiful Sunday Masses were never offered at all. But perhaps the reform went a little bit too far in the sense that he took a lot of these Sunday feasts and put them back on a weekday. And now only in what, every eight years or ten years, something like that, are, are these feast days kept. However, the Holy Father, in his um, providential care for the Church, said that, that, that the, the individual priest, uh, the pastor of the uh, Church, could still keep with his people these feast days on the Sunday. He could still maintain that. So he didn't forbid it by any means. And so that's the reason why at our church and many other priests I know do the same thing. They keep these feast days till uh, most years, the Holy Name of Mary, and then certainly the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady. A very almost universal one, a very popular one, is the um, first Sunday of October, the Feast Day of the Rosary. Almost, almost everybody keeps that. But these are, these are, so, but these are important important lessons for us, important reminders, that's the point, right, is to save our souls and get to heaven. God uses sorrow in order to purify us from sin, detach us from this world, and at the same time, seemingly paradoxically, to soothe our own sorrows. So if, if someone is really plunged into depression and worry and despair and money or taxes or bad health or rebellious children, whatever it is, he, he should practice a devotion to the Passion of Our Lord and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady. September is a month for the Holy Cross. And, uh, and by, by meditating, quietly honoring, by meditating these, um, these devotions, these, these sorrows, the, uh, the, the Catholic is enabled to surmount them somehow, to, to find a real solace. It's interesting, a real solace. And this is something which should be difficult for most people to begin to put into words. But that's all right. That's Our Lady comes. She soothes us. She makes us see what's going on. She strengthens us. These are some of the very practical effects of having, as you say, uh, a feast of sorrow. That's our glory. That's a seeming paradox, isn't it? Because, you know, you, especially if people would say, well, you're triumphalists. Well, sure, it's one thing to celebrate the feast day of um, the Holy Name of Mary, this extraordinary victory. The, um, uh, the leader of the Turkish troops outside of Vienna was having his morning coffee, and everything was, was, was going along very well. He never expected Our Lady to show up at his tent. And he had to flee so quickly that he left his cup of coffee undrunk, and he just fled. And he left behind everything. And so the, the, you know, the Viennese took the, uh, his, the hangings of his tent 
and uh, made them into a beautiful set of vestments, which at one time was used for solemn mass of gratitude on the 12th of September each year. And you see it in one of the churches in in Vienna. So uh, that's, of course, that's triumphal, and everyone can we can all get on get behind that as it were. But um, the sorrows of Our Lady, you misunderstandings, uh, silence when maybe speech would seem to have been required. Uh, and there's one grief on top of another, Our Lady in her heart going through and feeling physically what her, what her son what was suffering externally and the scourging, the crowning with thorns, the nailing to the cross. These are these are, are, are deep mysteries, but that's the other that's the other shoe, it's the other side of the coin. That's that's the whole picture. The the feast of sorrow gives us and only Catholics get this, only traditional Catholics get this. That uh you know, and the, the whole Protestant approach was one like a false triumphalism. Where is their place for expiating sin, and how do they deal with sorrow? You're all, all of these are Pentecostalists and Charismatics. You feel vaguely like a Seventh Day Advent, excuse me, a um, Christian Scientist. You know, if you have the sniffles, or, or God forbid, you're actually sick, you feel guilty because you should be able to pray your way to the believer's victory. You should be able to get, get you battle that cancer and you get rid of it, or you, you, and then you get a lot of money and you buy a Mercedes-Benz too. And that's, that's, that's the victory of your faith, right? And here, the Catholics are saying, oh no, put on black and sit down here. And um, it's like the, one of the first orders uh, the, uh, founded in the United States of America in, in Kentucky, the Sisters of Our... It was called originally the Sisters of Our Lady of Loretto at the Foot of the Cross. It's a glorious uh, origin and story. Um, they used to meet every day at 3 o'clock in the chapel, and the bells would ring, and they would just sit there and, and kneel and meditate and honor the, the sorrows of our, of our Lady at the death of her son. But then if you think about it, what's our worship? That's the chief act of our worship. It is the making present here and now, in an unbloody way, of the horrible, painful, excruciatingly sorrowful death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then Our Lady's mystical death, her compassion, we call it, her suffering with her son. So that's the essence of our religion. So far from being sort of an odd thing, you might say, you're at the heart, you've, uh, in September, on the Feast of the Seven Sorrows, you've unveiled the very heart of religion. True religion, and and I think for me personally, there's a big lesson. You mentioned Our Lady's silence, and uh, my personality type uh, being more choleric. I, I if I'm wronged, I'm more likely to want to say something about it. Yeah, it's just, and, that's true. Uh, yeah, sure. and you know, of course. looking at all these looking at all these sorrows, you're, you know, Our Lady could have she could have asked questions. She could have said, "This isn't right." Uh, all mm-hmm. sorts of very reasonable things. And and what a lesson it is for those of us of my temperament, um, you know, that Our Lady is trying to impart as well. She takes you into uh, through the devotion to her sorrows, and, and obviously a fortiori to the devotion to our Lord's sufferings, his sorrow and death. You're taken into another forcefully. You're pushed into another dimension, and it's a it's a wrenching experience. It's a little bit like uh, having too much jet lag. That's how I think of it. Said so all of a sudden, you know, you're 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 in Paris, and boy, you know, it's more. What happened to the night? And your body is saying, no, it's nighttime. You need to be resting. But you're you're it's it's it's, it's awake. It's time for breakfast. The sun's up. You're, you're you're wrenched into another into another world. 
And the, the world that you're thrown into in this case is, uh, you know, as he would say today, hello, it's the real world. This is the, the world of, of silence and of suffering. This is the, the world of the science of the saints. This is how saints deal with things and Our Lady deals with things. That's one of the many beautiful practical lessons of the devotion to the Holy Cross, the sorrows of Our Lady, and its importance in uh, our life today. I was going to ask you, Your Excellency, and this might sound a bit strange in, in the asking, is there a, part- a favorite sorrow? Is there one that you find um, is something that you tend to meditate on longer than the others? Hmm. Hmm. Well, probably it would be it would be the sorrow of Our Lady uh, at at the crucifixion and the death of her son at Calvary, because that's uh, that's uh, that, that shows us so much from a theological point of view, as well as from a mystical point of view. That, and then maybe I'm also also very touched though by Our Lady, who is far away uh, physically from her son. She's at her. She's uh, she's with the holy women, perhaps at the cenacle, and our and our Lord is in the Garden of Gethsemane. But they're united. Our Lady is seeing everything, and she's suffering everything. As Saint John Yude says, "There's just one heart." So it's that idea of the union of the two hearts. But especially maybe the uh, the sorrows of uh, of of Our Lady at Calvary when she is the co-redemptrix. She becomes the mediatrix of all graces and, and our Mother by the new eve dying as much as and participating in the work of salvation as uh, uh, of redemption as much as uh, as a human being could possibly participate in it as you mentioned that i'm i'm thinking of the zeffirelli film jesus of nazareth and i think only only an italian could make our lady go into hysterics when the body is uh taken when our lord's body is taken down one of my quibbles with that film is thinking you know our lady would not have reacted that way you know, no, indeed not. It would be one of her saddest moments, but, you know, of course, I suppose an Italian has to create a sort of demonstrative situation, perhaps. <laughs> yes, that would be sort of a, the sort of the, the very the very baroque or even rococo, very emotional uh, Italian approach. But remember, that was hammered through, threshed out in the late Middle Ages. Oh, on one of these devotional shows, I think we talked about that, how um, the there, there was... Uh, a feast day of Our Lady in the northern countries, like in Flanders, for example, I think. De spasmo, Beate Maria Virginis, of the fainting of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And eventually the feast day and the whole concept was condemned and abolished. Because, And that's why I even cringe if I'm doing the way of the cross and I see some artist has Our Lady half collapsing, being maybe being held up by John, something like that, and that's just so untrue. That's that's a false artistic license. It's Stabat Maria, as Saint John tells us in the Gospel. Our Lady was she was standing. She is the firm and immovable pillar. She is the co-redemptrix. She's the new Eve. Uh, she's the true Rebecca. And Our Lady is fulfilling each one of the Old Testament prototypes during the Passion, but especially at Calvary. And she doesn't faint, and she stands very bravely. She weeps many, many tears, and she suffers 
more than a thousand martyrdoms, uh, as as much as a human being could suffer, so that it's a, it's a miracle, a true miracle that she does not die because she dies mystically there. That's the point. But but she stands. So and our, so 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 that's um, associated with that uh, that idea of suffering and sorrow. And also this takes us back again to a little bit about September. That takes us to the the churches chosen reading for the beginning of September in the divine office or official worship in the, in the, in the hour of mountains said during the night, we, we read from the book of Job. And Job is the story of fortitude, Our Lady of Sorrows. She's the story of fortitude and that of a humble, far more than Job, Our Lady shows us the humble truth submission under the hand of God. Uh, you know, it's our, it's God's will. I, I accept it. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. So uh, September's virtue is certainly the virtue of fortitude, not only because of a brave king like Jan Sobieski, but also um, because of the, the sorrows of Our Lady. So you see how how um, how again you, uh, we're Americans, so we see it in these terms how practical, as it were, all of these old feast days and old devotions. This perspective truly is so that the, the virtue as well as the gift of fortitude is highlighted uh, probably there's never a time when we don't think about fortitude soldiers of christ the martyrs but especially in september especially in the face of our own personal sorrows and probably if someone is going through a job-like period in his life then you have to you have to think of it in those terms our, our, our lady is here and and she's giving us the example also Stephen, i wanted to mention that the reason we have uh, this feast day of sorrows, in addition to the feast day of the seven sorrows of uh, not the seven sorrows, but our, the sorrowful mother, uh, Our Lady of Compassion, technically in um, in Passion Tide during Lent on the Friday of Passion Week. The reason for that has to do with what should be the Catholic's great, greatest sorrow today, and which was the case so often in history. That is to say, the chastisement of the Church, the disorders in the Church. This feast day, September the 15th, came to the Church from the the Servite Order, as, as I've said, but it came because of Pius VII. Pius VII was very devoted to the sorrows of our Blessed Mother. And the story of the feast day is an interesting story. That is to say, the the documents for establishing the feast begin on March 20th, uh, 1809. But it's only uh, five years later, on September the 18th, 1814, that the decree instituting this feast day for this, this Sunday in, in September after the holy name of Mary, is actually established. And the reason for that is that during those five years, the, the government of the church, the government of Christendom, was essentially suspended because the, we're, we're speaking about those who are, are captive and held prisoner, held hostage. Well, the Pope himself was captured. He was kidnapped by the wretched uh, Napoleon, the, the French revolutionary, and taken eventually uh, as a sort of a captive prize to, to, to Paris. So it's 
it's the Pope himself who was originally very devoted to the feast day, but then he finds in this feast day, in the contemplation of these sorrows, especially at a miraculous image of Our Lady in Savona, where he was kept prisoner for um, a good period of time before he was finally transferred to Fontainebleau outside of Paris. Um, it's this uh, it's this devotion to the seven sorrows that really moves and supports and inspires Pope Pius VII. So if we have this feast day in September, it's a personal tribute of gratitude for the deliverance of the Church on the part of the sovereign pontiff after he's rescued. I'll be giving a, this could be an ad, I'll be giving a, a, a show on Saturday with one of your confreres, Stephen, and we're going to be talking about litanies for September. And I, I discovered yesterday that uh, Pope Pius VII himself in Savona composed a beautiful litany to Our Lady of Sorrows. That's one of, that's one of the many, many unknown litanies, you might say, of the church, but this is actually from the pen of the Pope himself. So he was the one who was suffered you know, so so much indignity, so much pressure, you know, being called in by the emperor for you know hollering at or screaming at sessions. You know, tried to to break the Pope, and the Pope would never. He was very meek, said very little. He had that silence and that dignified silence of a real of a real king of, of a Pope. Um, but he was Napoleon could never break him. Nor would he ever retaliate in any way. So that's why Napoleon, at the end of his own life, reminiscing about Pius VII, says these wonderful lines. He says, he was a lamb, that man. He was a lamb. In that sense, he was truly the lamb of God. He was the vicar of the lamb of God. But he had that strength, that that Marian strength that we see in in Our Lady in her sorrows. Uh, And a lot of it came to him, I am convinced, um, even though it was a little bit tinted, some would say quite a bit tinted with some of the liberal ideas, uh, but he had this strong devotion to Our Lady of Sorrows, and this is what saw him through safely to victory, and it will see us through safely to victory as well. I'm sure. You mentioned uh, Pius VII. You know, my first thought was that you know, if someone knew about sorrow, uh, not maybe perhaps as much as Pius IX, but. Pius VII had his share, and so you, it's somewhat easier to write, perhaps write a prayer from, from real-life experience, but I also thought, right. too, connecting us back to um, ransom, something that we didn't have a chance to talk yeah. about before, was right. the um, the fact that the, the first Burberry War was uh, suppressed during the, the, one of the good wars that you could say the United States was involved mm-hmm. in, suppressing the Muslim pirates. Is, uh, yes, I think very people always accuse Accuse you and I of perhaps being a little too hard on our on our country, Your Excellency. So I thought we'd take any opportunity to to uh, praise the United States and 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 warlike intervention where where it matters. But um, additionally, even I though going... I, I for, forgive me, Stephen, I must say history <laughs> demands it. Even though that was the occasion of George Washington, the president, writing that America is not a Christian nation. Uh, yeah. Uh, per, perhaps, perhaps he, the, the spirit of prophecy came upon him. He, he said the truth that American is not a Christian nation. Um, but, but well, yes, he didn't want that, to be accused of aiding the Holy Father. I mean, that would have, that would have God, been God forbid. You know, there there are there are <laughs> limits, aren't there? After all, God forbid. But uh, but, uh, but, but, but back to that but, idea of, of the Muslims and, and ransom, I, I think too yes. gives us an occasion to say, you know, people always they love to fight the Crusades, as you know. Sort of thing. So can you can you name any time when when Christians kidnapped Muslims and then held them for ransom? 
You know, this is a this is a religion of peace, right? Apparently, but uh, this was a, a common practice. It's acknowledged in history. There were religious orders founded, the Trinitarians, to go take care of uh, of the people who are ransomed. Uh, what what about this religion of peace? So I think it's it's a good. Um, Our Lady of Ransom is also a good historical nod to, to oh, yeah. engage oh, yeah. engage our our fellow um, our fellow non uh, people who are non believers or people who are in our workplace to say you know Our Lady of Ransom today did you know you know what ransoming was you know how that happened and um, I think it, at least somewhat an uncomfortable conversation which would, which is good very very important to counter what the Bush the second said about this being you know, the celebrated religion of peace some some time after. 9/11, um, and uh, it's the the entire history of the Mohammedan religion is is the history of violence and of the sword. The religion is spread by means of of destruction, blood, battles, and the sword, and and no other way. Um, I heard a little bit of an interesting program on the BBC a while ago, early one Sunday morning, explaining from a Buddhist perspective why it was I think in Thailand. No, sperma. Why they have these terrible uh, battles between Muslims and, in this sense, Buddhists. And Buddhists, theoretically, are, you know, these very de- detached people of, of meditation and peace. Why are the Buddhists, what, the, 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 the leader of the Buddhist faction, explain that, that if you have one Mohammedan, he's a nice man and he's a friendly neighbor. You get two or three, you get a group, you get finally a majority, and they become your enemy. They will destroy you. You will become a Mohammedan or they will kill you. Not to put too fine a point on it, um, this is this is the this is the lesson of history. This is all going on today. This is what makes all of these uh, historical uh, feasts and celebrations and anniversaries that we're speaking about this morning crucial, very important, as it were. <laughs> Let the priest preach about this. Let the people read and study this. This is the truth of the of uh, Islam of submission. And it's it's that or the sword. Truly, it is. And so, even even Buddhists, even benighted Buddhists or Hindus, God forbid, they recognize this. They're fighting for their survival. And uh, mm. we have never fought. We have never fought for our survival. I hate to even touch upon politics here, but we have never fought for our survival in in this sense. Uh, but we ought to. And but the only fight that's worth doing is is is, is fight with the battle of devotion to Our Lady and her sorrows and her rosary and the rest of it. But this is just one of the many, oh, you know, current, up-to-date, or relevant, if you will, uh, applications of these ancient feasts and devotions for the world today. It takes, it takes our attention back to, to, to the truth that lurks behind the headlines, but everyone's afraid to talk about it. Mm, absolutely. It's, the one thing, it's one of the few things you can't talk about. Yes, it is. It is one of the few things you have. To, well, there's something else too, but there may be two <laughs> things you simply can't. I, I was going to say we, we can't even talk about not talking about that. Your <laughs> No, no, indeed not. Don't you dare, or else you two will be thrown under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're a little bit past uh, the halfway point in our, our show. You're listening to True Restoration, um, the flagship show of the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner, and I'm joined today by His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. We've been discussing September, Mary's month. That might sound strange to some of you, but uh, I think His Excellency has made a compelling case today for that. Um, I wanted to mention a couple things I've got going on on Twitter. For those of you who are going to listen to this in podcast form later, you can just go to our Twitter feed and see these links. The first was a link 
um, to something His Excellency wrote uh, some time back called The Pius X and John the Twenty-Third Missiles Compared. And you can find that on traditionalmass.org, but I have the link so you can just click straight through. And if you go down probably about three-quarters of the way, in that, the, whole, the whole comparison is worth looking at, but particularly germane to our discussion today, the octaves, and his excellency has, I don't know, like more than a dozen octaves that have been suppressed. Um, and I'm going to ask you about that in a moment here, excellency. And the other uh, thing I've linked to on Twitter, um, uh, particularly to today, was an excellent sermon given this Sunday by uh, Reverend Nkamuke, uh, our deacon, uh, one of our deacons is here who's heading towards ordination, keep him in your prayers. But it's always nice when you can outsource that sermon to somebody who can do it capably, isn't it, Your Excellency? Uh, and, indeed, it is. It's a, uh, it's uh, well, it, it's it's a great joy for for as Father Scott calls our generation of the clergy, the old geezers. <laughs> it's a wonderful <laughs> thought to consider that the excellent work Bishop Sanborn is doing at Most Holy Trinity Seminary. And the fine uh, young uh, priests, future priests that he's producing from there. And this was uh, this was our Nigerian deacon's first sermon, preached in honor of Our Lady for her for her nativity, just this past Sunday. And it's a good solid, uh, good solid sermon full of uh, Catholic doctrine. It was. I have to say, I was very, I was very impressed. And you always give a little leeway to the deacons. You know, they probably just had their first homiletics class, and they're working through: should I have a hand gesture here or not? And I, I didn't, I didn't get the seat. I only listened to it, but I thought it was just, it was just measured, it was balanced, it, it had all the right ingredients. The, the cookbook was was definitely there, and I thought it was an excellent. Sermon. Yes, I, uh, I, I told them before, and what I always tell people, and what I was told in turn as a young priest that um by my spiritual director Eddie Cohn, who was a uh a Trappist father, Father Urban Snyder of actually Getsemane originally of Getsemane Monastery in Kentucky, an interesting character in his own right, <laughs> certainly. But he he told us he gave us uh, the English speakers at Cohn in the early seventies a little course on sacred eloquence, it was called somewhat triumphantly. Sacred eloquence. But on, I never forgot what he told us and I tried to practice it. Pray before you work on your sermon. Say a Hail Mary, ask Our Lady for her help and her inspiration. Pray a rosary. So I, I, I told that to him, and I, in fact, I saw him in church a little bit later doing exactly that. And then my other piece of advice to the new deacon was, all right, you've heard Bishop Sanborn for years. I want you to preach the sermon exactly as Bishop Sanborn would preach the sermon, not the message itself, because you can't imitate you have to you have to be you you have to preach what you know what what comes to you through prayer it has to be your sermon but in the manner of your delivery i want you to sound as much as you can like bishop sanborn because he's he's known in our circles as the one whose meaning you never miss and everybody <laughs> uh, our church has a, our church has a, a wonderful acoustic Father Chicada design this acoustic for music but unfortunately it's not so good for public speaking and um uh, most of the preachers, including myself, uh, have the misfortune to have dropped words or phrases, especially for those people who are a little bit older or have any hearing difficulty, hearing loss. But when Bishop Sanborn comes to town, my goodness, everybody understands every word because he has a very, very clear, methodical delivery. Um, so I, I told that to our deacon, and of course he knew exactly what I was talking about because he's listened to the bishop every day for years as a seminarian in class as well as in his in his sermons, conferences. So um, 
he 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 employed that, and I think to very good effect. I was going to say, if we were to imitate Bishop Sanborn, you'd have to have a frying pan in your right hand to sort of hammer home that message. Well, people, there, there is, who are, there is, and I'm sure I'm sure you would be the first to admit there is a certain element that that uh, an essential part of it is this idea that you are condemning some error. As long as you're condemning an error and you're very, very strong about it, <laughs> then everyone's going to understand you. <laughs> it has, it passes the, tr- the Bishop Sanborn spell test at that point. In, in, indeed, indeed, absolutely. And well, again, the truth of the matter is there is so much which is to be condemned today. But that, that, that punch, syllable by syllable, punch it out, that sort of thing, that's what I told him. And I think he did it very well because, of course, he's from Nigeria, so he has a for- what, what is to us a foreign accent and uh, uh, for a lot of people that's off-putting in a sermon but um he i think he conquered that very well but uh, and i'm sure he too would would agree with me in saying well we give our lady the credit for that mm. i want to take us back to the other twitter uh post that i i put up yesterday on the octaves you know i i, I as you were putting that together um and i, I it was i know it was a number of years ago but uh, were you not yourself somewhat astonished at the at, at the number of? I mean, I'm sure you knew that it was going to be bad, but did you know how mm-hmm. just how many octaves had gone away? Well, it's always impressive when you compile the list and you step back and you say, "My goodness, look at that!" And even then, to point out to others, you know, like ascension is only from the eighth century, so they had to abolish that octave. You know, things like that. It's just uh, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a methodical hatred of Catholicism, of the triumph and the glories of her worship. And it's a, it's a methodical, slow, step-by-step rejection of Christendom, of the Catholic world, of this Catholic approach to life and uh, to worship and to belief. That's, that's the work of the modernists, and that's, the, that's, that's why it's so odd that people you know, will praise so much or cling to this uh, John the XXIII uh, Missal. Which 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 was so it was, the mutilations that took place were those which were just considered as essential. They just couldn't have that anymore. They had to. They couldn't even wait for a couple of years for the council to destroy the rest. They just had to get this stuff out right away. Yeah, I should clarify that that His Excellency's um, sort of side by side is not Novus Ordo versus Pius X. It's no. Pius X versus John the Twenty Third. Which is yes, uh, also yes. known in some circles as the 1962 missile. Um, yes, and so how, that's, a, how that's also another it? topic for another show, isn't it? <laughs> and, indeed, yes. That we, we, we probably mustn't get uh, distracted by that. <laughs> but um, I wanted to say something a little bit more too about um, from a devotional point of view, and also, oh, from a point of view of names. As a priest, of course, I baptize, and I, I know a number of other priests who share with me an, an interest in the history and the meaning of names. So I had a baptism on Sunday, for example, and the boy was given, I told I told the family, well, there's, there's good news and bad news, bad news about this baby's name. His name was Logan Michael. So the bad news is he's not named after a saint. He's named after an airport. But the good news is it's an Irish. It's an Irish name, and if you know if you've got an, a foot in the door with Ireland, well, you know maybe he could become the first Saint Logan, and then went on from there to consider Saint Michael, sort of like a devotion to the angels, as like an airport to, uh, you, from whence you can get to heaven. You just, <laughs> just go soaring on up with the help of good Saint Michael. But the, the history of names is very interesting. For example, I'm sure a lot of our listeners 
will have come across the what is to us uh, someplace between curious and really shocking the, uh, the uh, custom of Mexicans naming their sons after our Lord Himself, because we use the holy name very sparingly out of reverence, and uh, the Mexicans use the holy name in the name of God too, the name of God and the name of Jesus. Uh, a lot out of uh, confidence and a different kind of reverence. But these are just some of the, the cultural differences that you find within the glories of Christendom. And I mention that because I learned in preparing for this program, Stephen, that it was the same thing for the name of Our Lady. Again, Poland. Uh, the, the Poles never baptized a girl Mary, the name was, that, that, that would be considered as presumptuous. That's Our Lady's name. And uh, there was a certain king, Polish King Ladislas, who espoused uh, uh, Marie-Louise de Nevers. Um, and one of the conditions of the espousal documents was that she would give up her name of Marie because uh, and be known as Princess Louise only, because that would be too irreverent to Our Lady. So there's several examples from Poland, uh, from uh, Castile or Spain too, um, and then in Spain in general. That's how that's how we get the names that you still hear today. Uh, so a woman might be might might be called Dolores after D Dolores, the sorrows, the sorrows of of Mary. I know confirming in Mexico, I would come across um, uh, Lupe, Lupita, or Guadalupe. It's Maria de Guadalupe, Our Lady of of Guadalupe. It was, uh, and it goes back to that ancient Spanish custom of the name of Mary just being too holy. And then, uh, so that's oh, one author says that um, it's a, uh, it's a, on the one hand, for some nations, it's a custom born of respect. Whereas in those places where the name of Mary is given out, it's founded on confidence. And so the French. Uh, will will baptize historically they baptize their girls Marie after the Blessed Mother, but the, the French call Our Lady the Très Sainte Vierge historically most of all the Most Holy Virgin, um, and then after that maybe Notre Dame. But in English, in invariably we would refer to Our Lady as Our Lady, Lady meaning Sovereign or Mistress. And so it is in, the, in each nation. It's probably in the, Latin, the other Latin languages. It's maybe about 50-50, uh, Nuestra Señora, Our Lady, or La Santísima Virgen, the Most Holy Virgin. So each country, each uh, culture has its own customs concerning these holy names. We should remember, too, that the name of Mary deserves at least a slight bow of the head and that it is an, an indulgence prayer St. Pius X granted so many indulgences to the Church, very richly indulgence the prayerful uh, recitation of her name, as well as the holy name of Jesus, because it's a prayer. The name itself is a prayer. Um, there's a lot to be said about Mary's name, Stephen. Uh, one author says there are at least 80, at least 80 different possible meanings or significations. The name of Mary is a name, uh, Dom Guéranger would use the phrase, replete with mystery. Uh, no one knows exactly what it means, and that permits uh, so many saints and so many orators and, and spiritual writers to give all sorts of different 
possible meanings for her name and then to draw wonderful lessons as a result of that. So probably the best known would be uh, Saint, uh, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, and he speaks about Our Lady's name as meaning uh, Maristella, the star of the sea. And uh, then, and then he preached uh, to the, the the lucky Cistercians of his day. He preached a beautiful series of sermons on um, Our Lady as as the star of the sea. Uh, Ipsa propitia pervenis. With her being propitious, you reach the shore. You reach the safe harbor. Uh, Respice stellam. He says, Voca Mariam. Look upon the star. Call upon Mary. So she truly is for us in the dark sea of this life. The, the star of the sea. But then we also have, um, uh, according to St. Uh, Peter Chrysologus, we have Our Lady's name as meaning uh, sovereign or mistress, or as we would say in English, uh, with great respect, Our Lady. And then there is another meaning of Mary's name from the Hebrew, Mara, which means bitterness. Call me not uh, Naomi, beautiful, but call me Mara, that is bitter. Uh, we read that, I think, one of the books of wisdom in the Old Testament, because the Almighty hath quite filled me with bitterness. So that's, and that takes us into the devotion to, uh, to Mary's sorrows. So um, there are just, uh, there are so many uh, devout uses of, of, of that search for the, what, what's the meaning of Mary's name. And it, it just it spurs a whole lot of prayer and a tremendous amount of confidence and a lot of uh, practicality. But what's good for us to remember, though, is that idea, there's something glorious about our American tradition, well, not American, but the English-speaking tradition, you'd have to say, that we would never frequently, we wouldn't we would use the holy names of Jesus or of Mary. We use them sometimes, of course, but uh, not too often and not too frequently. And as I say, in, in the Latin countries, it's the opposite. But our approach is that of, of restraint due to a profound respect. And so we would rather refer to her as Our Lady, or as a French, to the Most Holy Virgin. And, and, and we try to remember that when we use her name, we are meant to bow the head, as we do for the, the holy name of Jesus himself. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of a story of St. Bernard. He would, whenever he walked by a statue of Our Lady, he would he would say Ave Maria, and it, it, it said that when he died, Our Lady came to him and said Ave Bernard, um, which I which I thought is a, a nice story. It, that's yeah, that's that's the story connected with the Cathedral Spire in Germany. He is said to have passed. Our Lady statue, and as you say, he had that custom throughout his life. Whenever he passed an image of Our Lady, he would pause, bow his head, and say Ave Maria. And um, at the cathedral, in fact, Bishop Sanborn and I went there once, the cathedral spire, and we stopped in on, on we we're on the road someplace, and specifically to see the statue and see the place where the the, the salutation occurred. And that's how that's what a great Saint Bernard of Clairvaux is. And, uh, in so many senses of the term, my goodness, what a great man he, he was, um, that Our Lady returned the salutation, Salve Bernarde, Hail Bernard. So, um, And then it's, it's said that it's St. Bernard of Clairvaux who added to the Hail Holy Queen the, the very ending phrase, O Clemens, O Pia, O Dulcis Virgo Maria, O Merciful, O, o Clement, O Sweet Virgin Mary. Um, and that's the, that's, I might say, the standard antiphon to Our Lady that sung... Uh, 
really throughout the whole church, especially during this this season of the year. Absolutely. For those of you who are just joining us, um, we are in the, the final part of our show um, today, the 27th show of True Restoration on the Restoration Radio Network. Uh, we have as our guest His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan from St. Gertrude the Great, uh, and I am Stephen Heiner. Here, Sophia, is there anything else that you feel uh, you'd like to talk about, not just about September, which we I think you well explicated as Mary's month, but about any of these particular feasts in general? Well, uh, now speaking about names, and as I've confessed, I'm, I, I've, it's almost a well, it's a professional interest as I'm a as I have baptized many a baby in my in my priestly day. Um, the, the idea of names and the history of names and the meaning of names, the etymology of words. Uh, so much meaning is to be found in the breakdown, the, the origin, the source of a, of a word. That, when if you're studying something, that's the very first thing I think you want to do is look it up in the dictionary. Where does this word come from? Usually, it comes from Latin, and what a, what a, what, a, what a wealth is there that we have a, sort of a foot up already. Uh, we're a little bit uh, because of our familiarity with Latin in advance of others for having, well, you might say building a good vocabulary. The, the um, Our Lady of Ransom, that's, for me, that's a fascinating topic because in the Latin, it's an, um, Santa Maria de Mercede, of Ransom, de Mercede. The Latin noun is merces, mercedes, which uh, is used in the gospel, um, and my reward, I will come and my, I will bring my reward with me for you, our Lord promises to the faithful servant. Merches mea cum So merches or, or reward or wages in that sense, it goes into medieval French and then current day uh, Spanish as uh, merced, uh, our lady of payment, as in the sense of money that's raised, to pay the captors for the slaves whom they are holding so that they can be released. It's a price which is, which is raised and then paid to, to obtain what? In effect, to give mercy to these poor, helpless slaves. So sometimes, so you see, the, word, the English word mercy, as in Our Lady of Mercy, or the mercy of Our Lady, such a beautiful theme, is connected with, the feast day in September 24th, and the English word of ransom, it's clearer in uh, Spanish and in the Latin languages, Nuestra Señora de la Merced, Our Lady of, of, of Ransom, Our Lady of Mercy. And you hear the word merchandise in merchas. That, that's the origin even of merchandise. So Our Lady is engaging, as it were, in, in merchandise. She's raising funds so that something can be purchased or bought back. What's that? That's you and me who are slaves to the devil and sin. Uh, pray God we never end up slave to the Mohammedans, although you never know what's going to happen in this world of ours, uh, as, as does happen regularly to so many poor Christians or former Christians from the West. But all of us fall into the captivity of Satan, bad habits of sin, and um, we, what? We need, we depend on God's mercy. How does God's mercy come to us? God's mercy comes to us chiefly through Mary, because that's how God came to us. And so, um, technically speaking, mercy 
is defined as the response of charity to misery. Charity, Deus Caritas, as St. John says, God is, is, is charity, God is love. And then he sees our, our misery, our utter helplessness. You know, think of a, of a galley slave, or think of some, some poor uh, Westerner who's being held captive in some desert by Somalian guards and given the Koran to read and really being pressured to apostatize from Christendom, the Christian faith. Um, we're, we're miserable. We need God's mercy, and that comes to us by means of Mary, just as um, historically it came to us uh, by means of Our Lady establishing this feast day, uh, excuse me, establishing the order itself of Our Lady of Ransom for the redemption of captives, and the great work that was carried out by, uh, by the raising of money. You know, the Mercedarians uh, made a fourth vow, a fourth vows are, are common with religious orders with a particular end or purpose. And their fourth vow was when they ran out of money that they should give themselves in exchange for their captives. Literally to carry out the words of the Savior in the Gospel, greater love than this no man hath than he give his life for those whom he loves. And so you see that in the, the feast day of a saint whom we had just the other week. We had him uh, a week ago, uh, Saturday, on the 31st of August. He is the great saint of the Mercedarian order, Saint Raymond Nonatus. Nonatus is a nickname which means not born because he was born by Caesarean section after the death of his mother while he was still in the womb. And he is he's a patron saint of mothers and childbirth. And he's the one who was the great light, the great star of this new Mercedarian order. He raised huge amounts of alms to be given, to be paid in, in ransom for the Christians in Tunisia, northern Africa, for their, for their, for their freedom. And when he ran out, he kept his vow. Uh, and that the, he, he gave himself in exchange. And at the beginning, the Muslims couldn't believe their luck because there's Mohammedans now, they had a Catholic priest um, and, and the very leader of resistance to them uh, in their hands. And so they, they went to town, torturing him, imprisoning him, starving him and all the rest. But for these infidels, of course, they, and it's the same thing today, at some point, they, they they see a conflict between their faith and their religion, that is to say between money and the making of money and the hatred of Christianity and of Christians. And so in this case, they decided they better ease up on him because eventually they, ho they did indeed hope to get a, a really huge ransom for the release of this priest who was himself a ransomer. Um, but his mistake, as it were, and his glory, was that St. Raymond couldn't help but be charitable. So he not only preached to and, and, and uh, comforted and strengthened the Catholics in prison, but he also converted some Mohammedans, which is death. So, um, and that happened two different times, and two different times he got a reprieve. One time he was forced to run the gauntlet uh, down, down the street, uh, you know, with being scourged by everybody. And another time, and finally, he was cast into prison, and his lips were pierced with a with a with a red hot uh, uh, iron implement, and kind of a knife, I guess. And then they were padlocked. They were padlocked shut, so he couldn't preach the name of Jesus anymore to those poor benighted infidels. Then he he had he depended entirely on the on the uh, on his captors to open up the padlock so that he could take food or water. And in that miserable state, he survived for a number of months until he was ransomed. Then he came back to Europe in triumph, 
and was uh, made a cardinal by the Pope, and for a while served as the Pope's counselor, and uh, was doing the Pope's bidding, traveling someplace or another on papal business to preach a crusade when he died. And then he went to heaven all, all covered with glory. So he's maybe the best example of this, of this order of Our Lady of Ransom that was founded uh, on the 24th of September during the Middle Ages by, by the Mother of God herself. Hmm. This is not um, a feast that only occurs in September, Your Excellency, but in, as we are bringing our show to a close, I thought it might be worthwhile just to visit briefly on first Saturdays and the Saturday promises so that if people aren't into that, we already missed this month, but maybe they can get ready for next month. Yeah, I, I really wish, I don't know how it is in other places, but uh, I know even from my own church, I mean, just... Uh, it's um, uh, well, uh, of course. It's I suppose in a sense understandable. There are the five first Saturdays. There are the nine first Fridays. All heaven asks you to do is to make them once. And so people make them once, and they might vaguely think back on it years later with comfort. Oh, I made my first Saturdays. Well, the first Saturdays, though, Stephen, are so complicated. Um, easy but complicated to do. I wonder how many Catholics made them, as it were, validly, whether they fulfilled. It's far more complicated than for the first Fridays. Uh, I wonder how many actually have fulfilled that. And if they have, and they've procured for themselves the benefit thereof, why don't they offer a ride to somebody who's never made them? And why don't they see that their children and their grandchildren, as soon as possible, make them? But they don't. It's something that is always dying out, always dying out. And uh, there's only a few pious folk at, at Mass. And then you might do a sermon or you might try to stir up the embers and blow on the charcoal a little bit and get it fired up again. And then, then there'll be another resurgence of devotion. But I wish people would make the first Saturdays not only for their own personal benefit, but for what we've been speaking about this morning, for yet another victory in time and a victory of mercy of the Mother of God, because we are threatened by the Mohammedans. We are threatened by infidel forces, and not just the Mohammedans either. And uh, our, as Our Lady said at Fatima, wars are a punishment for sin. It looks like we might be able to escape this new war that the bad guys are plotting to impose upon us, which could easily lead, I'm sure, to a world war. You can just see that happening, as it did 100 years ago. But uh, in any case, the, the answer to it is a, is a, a devotion to Mary's Immaculate Heart. Obviously, this is all based on, on private revelation, but it's been so approved by the Church and become so much a part of our liturgical life with the feast day of the Immaculate Heart of Mary uh, that, and, and the approval of, uh, of, uh, of the different pontiffs that it would be hard to discount it. Uh, if we want peace, you know, we, have to, we have to make reparation to Mary's Immaculate Heart. So, for example, we'll be having a rosary procession on Friday night, the uh, the 13th, uh, to honor the September Fatima apparition, and to beg for peace. And who knows, uh, the ten just men of Abraham, you know, Sodom, uh, who knows, maybe just a handful of people with a handful of prayers. I mean, some saints say that a soul can be saved because one Hail Mary was said for somebody. God doesn't really demand too much of us. But if we would carry out what Our Lady herself asks. And she was, it wasn't her idea, as it were. God sent her to this earth 
to give us uh, a way in the last times to have peace, or at least to make it that it wouldn't be so bad. So that would be by keeping the first Saturdays. So what are the component parts of first Saturday? That that would be to make, uh, first of all, make a confession, a confession of reparation with the intention to make reparation for your sin. You can do it on first Saturday or on first Friday, but the idea of reparation to Mary's Immaculate Heart. And then the, 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 with the help of the confession then, to make a good Holy Communion, a sacramental Holy Communion in the state of grace, again with the intention, reparation to Mary's Immaculate Heart. Then to pray properly five decades of the Dominican Rosary, I say to pray properly, which means you at least take a stab at really meditating on the mysteries, thinking over something, keeping a picture in your mind, praying for some particular grace connected with the mystery. There are many ways to meditate, and everybody can meditate. Everybody, We all meditate in different ways. Um, worldly people don't believe, they meditate. What am I going to do for my summer vacation? How am I going to spend this bonus, or how am I going to pay this bill? You know, everybody, people meditate. It's not true that people can't do meditation. Everybody meditates all the time. If we just well, use that... Could, could think of a couple ways that the bonus could be spent there at St. Gertrude's. Oh, I'm sure that he could. <laughs> I could even meditate on that myself. <laughs> We're always meditating. That's 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 sort of like discursive thinking, you know, just considering something. Um, so you can you can meditate, and we need to meditate on the mysteries of the Rosary. Then the other thing, and this is what most people miss. Every now and again, I'm edified to see someone after Mass on first Saturday making the first Saturday meditation. Keep me company, meditating with me. Our Lady asks. On one or more of the mysteries of the Rosary, uh, Our Lady told Lucy that uh, Sister Lucy that um, a sermon heard on First Saturday counts towards your meditation time. So, if, so if you are like a typical modern American, and the idea of just sitting there quietly in church would drive you crazy, you think, I can't meditate. I'm not. A, I'm not a monk. I can't. I can't do this. Then you can get a head start if if you have the the grace to hear a sermon on first Saturday. But you can meditate. That's my point. It's not that hard. You can do it. But that's what Our Lady asks for. Most people don't do it. Probably most first Saturdays are invalid. I'm going to go out on a limb here, Stephen, and say that because unless you keep her company, that you don't fulfill all the Fatima requests. Uh, so, and it's one of those things. You know, why take a chance? So just make them over and over again. People should go to church right. on first Saturday. They should make the sacrifice. I was going to say that you're okay. It's one of those. Uh, it's the same thing along the lines of the plenary indulgence. You, you never, you're never quite sure. So, you know, why just no, bank on the one plenary indulgence? Just keep going for it. I think of Pius yes. the twelfth words of a large family being a procession of sacraments. There's yes, always right. sac- there's always sacraments going on, and I think about this as if you you know it's like an, it, you're 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 speaking about it as how some people might think of a 30 day Ignatian retreat. Well, you know I did the 30 days one time, or well I did the five first Saturdays, but you think well how are you going to teach your children to do it? And you know if you're thinking about it in those you know ideas, why not have them do it when they were seven? as opposed to, you know, you did it when you were maybe 37. Uh, so yeah. if you have that habit, not only is it an opportunity for you to, you could say, make sure for yourself, but then, you know, you can you can guilt your, your friends along and say, hey, come on, you can buy them off at breakfast afterwards, whatever whatever you need to. But right. it's, yeah. it's not every Saturday. It's just one Saturday per month. One I Saturday. do have to say for, for myself, whenever I, I've been on, on campaigns, to do the five, I've always found it mysterious. Same thing with the, the nine Fridays that, you know, getting towards the end, if it's the fourth or the fifth 
Saturday something you know horrible would happen. I'd have some sort of crisis that would that would threaten to stop me from from finishing. I always thought, well, where did that come from? I, I wonder, I wonder why that's happening. But the, There's a purpose in that, yeah. The There's length of it is precisely sure. part of it. You have to persevere through that time period, and it, it you know the. The length of time, as you think about it, you've said this before in previous shows, but you know, the church has always been shortening things, and even this promotion has been made easier. Uh, these well, it has been. It has been sort of accommodated, For- and uh, even in that, even in that form, people find it difficult. But I look and say, you know, uh, we can't ever guarantee heaven. Uh, as Catholics, we have no assurance of this, but uh, these are ways to sort of make your case. <laughs> um, these are people definitely stand for you. Uh, at your particular right. judgment, which which I promise, uh, if people don't know, is going to be fearsome. Uh, these will these will be there, especially mine. I think uh, will be there oh, yeah. and for you. Oh yeah. So uh, that's um, at the risk of uh, of uh, favoring uh, the current pretender to the Roman throne. This might be one sense in which we do have to, we traditional Catholics, do have to be careful not to be Pelagian. I mean, Pelagian in that one sense of someone who calculates carefully all of his indulgences, all of the days and all of the quarantines and all of the years and all of his plenaries and, and his devotions and he's got everything in a row. He's made religion sort of mathematics and he's safe. Um, I think mm-hmm. of yesterday's saint. When Saint uh, Nicholas of Tolentino, a great Augustinian, a great uh, servant of Mary, a great miracle worker, when he died, he de- in, after a life full of penance and fasting and all the rest of it, he declared um, to his brethren that he did not have his justice, which was from his own works, absolutely not, that he trusted entirely in the mercy of God and the mercy of, uh, of Our Lady. He, he, wanted, he wanted that to be very clear to the brethren. He wasn't putting his hope in anything that, that he had done. And in that one sense, uh, old Bergoglio is right. And you have to, we traditional Catholics, the true Catholics, we do have to watch out for that. So, and you never know. I mean, who are you? No man is a judge in his own case. Uh, St. Bridget had a vision, uh, I think it was for the whole year of 1300, for the Jubilee year. Uh, At that time, plenary indulgences were far more rare than they are today and very hard to gain. That all all these pilgrims went to Rome to gain the plenary indulgence by visiting the, the seven churches. She said hardly anybody. She saw in her vision that hardly anybody of all the thousands of pilgrims who came that year actually gained the plenary indulgence because they didn't fulfill the conditions. What condition? Well, for a plenary indulgence, it's that detachment, no sin and detachment from sin, no affection for sin. That's something worth meditating on. But a devotion to Our Lady, a devotion to her, her sorrowful and immaculate heart, is, is a, a devotion to her sorrows, is a sure way to lessen our our attachment to, to, to sin. So this, this really is an argument for continued the continued practice. However, I have to say, too, to be fair, you know that uh, it was the baby Jesus that's in one of these post-Fatima apparitions that told Sister Lucy that um, in a pinch, if people can't make the Saturday, you could do it on the Sunday. Now, I guess I never wanted to stress it all that much because it just seems like making it easier. But, um, and whereas Saturday, that's special. Let's see, you know, get some people that will come to church on for a Saturday because they have to go anyways on Sunday. But that's how heaven is. That's how our Lord is in his mercy. It's always this idea that something is better than nothing. So if you can't absolutely make it on a, on a Saturday some month, but you've got your Sunday Mass, well, do, but do all the things, including the meditation on, on the Sunday then. 
just as our just as our, our well, it's definitely that definitely point. removing any excuses. Your ex will be for sure. It does, doesn't it? It absolutely and totally does, and that's the people should. And you could always say, you know, way. it's Saturday in Australia, perhaps. You know, if, 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 <laughs> if it's Friday or something like that. Be, be fair um, to our, our our brethren down under. Yes, the poor Australians with their with their year turned around. <laughs> and, and you know, um, you're, I mean, Catholics are still drawn to coffee and donuts. Maybe, maybe the bribe is you offer coffee and donuts after you know first Saturdays, and then they'll they'll come in through you know through by the truckload. Stephen, if I thought I could get a, a fresh group to come to church on first Saturday, I would scramble the eggs myself. I would get I would get Father Chicada to do his chili chili whatever they're called combination of beans and eggs and. Those Tito chips. He makes a very, a very good breakfast. <laughs> we would cook mm. breakfast for them if we could. Um, it's a, it's very, it's very difficult. Part of it is, as we've said before, it's a lack of imagination on the part of our Catholics, and it's just sort of taking things for granted in a practical spirit of the minimalism that Catholics have always faced throughout every century and in every time. That's uh, that that's in a, a certain uh, corresponding lack of fervor. That, that, that's always the way. But what's the answer to that lack of fervor? It's a devotion to Our Lady, uh, and actually the meditation part of these devotions, the knowledge of our Catholic history, the celebration of her glorious feasts. We, that's why we have sermons. You know, we always have to be inspired. Somebody's got to, and so our deacon inspired us on Sunday for a stronger uh, devotion to Our Lady. And the show should do that for people, I pray. Uh, we always need to be encouraged and inspired to start over again. It's a new year. It's a new season. Let's start really to honor the Mother of God. Let's be peacemakers in the true sense of the term by promoting a devotion to her Immaculate Heart. And for us as Catholics, we're heading towards the end of our year. Our liturgical year ends soon. Um, so we're in that final, you could say, final yes. push before the new yes, year. It's, uh, it's never it's never too late to start, I suppose. No, and indeed it is, and, but that's, that's the beauty of it because of the cycle of the years. It's never too late to start. So we see, in a sense, where the church still keeps the concept of a new year starting in September in the fall, uh, the old uh, from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant new year. We keep a little bit of a sense of that. And then the, the, the strict liturgical year begins again with the first Sunday of Advent at the end of November or the beginning of December, depending. Stephen, before we depart in peace, I have, if I can impose on you, a very interesting uh, paragraph or two from uh, Father Faber. It's, his, it's from his celebrated, the introduction that he wrote on St. Louis de Montfort's treatise on the true devotion to Our Lady. And it, it speaks to a lot of the things that we've been talking about today. So with your indulgence, I'll read it. No, please. It, thank you. It is by Mary, says the blessed Grignon de Montfort, that the salvation of the world has begun, and it is by Mary that it must be consummated. Being the way by which Jesus Christ came to us the first time, she will also be the way by which he will come the second time, though not in the same manner. Mary must shine forth more than ever in mercy, in might, and in grace in these latter times, in mercy to bring back and lovingly receive the poor strayed sinners who shall be converted and shall return to the Catholic Church in might against the enemies of God, idolaters, schismatics, Mohammedans, Jews, and the souls hardened in impiety, who shall rise in terrible revolt against God to seduce all those who shall be contrary to them 
and make them fall by promises and threats. And finally, she must shine forth in grace in order to animate and sustain the valiant soldiers and faithful servants of Jesus Christ who shall do battle for his interests. Mary must be terrible as an army ranged in battle, principally in these latter times. It is principally of these last and cruel persecutions of the devil which shall go on increasing daily till the reign of Antichrist that we ought to understand that first and celebrated prediction and curse of God pronounced in the terrestrial paradise against the serpent, I will put enmities between thee and the woman and thy seed and her seed. God has never made or formed but one enmity, but it is an irreconcilable one. It is between Mary, his worthy mother, and the devil, between the children and servants of the Blessed Virgin and the children and instruments of Lucifer. Satan fears Mary, not only more than all angels and men, but in some sense more than God himself. It is not that the anger, the hatred, and the power of God are not infinitely greater than those of the, uh, of the Blessed Virgin, for the perfections of Mary are limited. But it is because Satan, being proud, suffers infinitely more from being beaten and punished by a little and humble handmaid of God. And her humility humbles him more than the divine power. The devils fear one of her size for a soul more than the prayers of all the saints and one of her menaces against them more than all other torments. That's, I think, a splendid quotation from Father Faber. He was a wonderful spiritual Mm. writer. And it, it it, it it speaks to us today and it sums up a lot of what we've been speaking about this morning and the world in which we find ourselves today. Absolutely. Well, I think that's an excellent place for us to conclude, Your Excellency. I'll, uh, I want to share, um, if you'd like to know a little bit more about His Excellency's work, um, you can go to sgg.org, and you can also go to sggresources.org. They have a new product that I will be giving to myself at some point for uh, for my parents, but um, they're called Inscribed Memorial Stones. This is a very sort of popular thing. And um, very recently priced, I have to say, you're about half the price of what I paid to get a brick at my alma mater. So, oh, well, um, that's, 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 that's good to hear. It's, it's Catholic faith, and it's a bargain, too. <laughs> See the mercy there's of a God. Co- there's a cloister walk outside of St. Yes. Gertrude's, for yes. those of you who haven't been there before, and these are memorial stones that you can have mm-hmm. described with the name of a loved one or uh, for your own family as a gift. But it's a very nice gift. We're getting closer to the gift-giving season instead of some of the uh, mania uh, surrounding that particular gift-giving season, you might give one of these memorial stones. But you can find that and other resources uh, at sggresources.org. And as I said, the the sermon I linked to uh, is on our Twitter, at True Restoration, but you can also find it on the homepage at sgg.org. If you'd like to write to His Excellency, uh, you may do so by writing to 4900 Rialto Road, Westchester, Ohio, 45069. And as you said before, uh, our clergy use their valuable time to, to come on these shows, so please feel free to send a donation along with the thank you note 
to His Excellency um, for his time. Uh, as far as our radio apostolate, you can find us at truerestoration.org, which has links to True Restoration Press, our uh, our book and gift sh- gift shop, True Restoration Media, with streaming videos, including uh, an interview we, we did with Bishop Dolan some time ago on traditional Catholicism, I think is one of the best interviews we've done before, we've ever done before, uh, links to our news and uh, our regular blog. And there's a donate button at the bottom of the page if you feel the show was worth a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever it might have felt like it was worth to you today. The beauty of uh, electronic donation is that you don't have to put a stamp on it. And if you actually literally donate a dollar, we'll probably get uh, 88 cents of that after the transaction fee. So even if it was as small as a dollar, uh, we definitely accept widow's might here at Restoration Radio. Uh, Your Excellency, thank you so much for your time today. And um, and we look forward to having you on this Saturday for uh, your devotion show, and we'll uh, we'll learn more about the litany. Yes, well, you're you're certainly welcome, and thank you for this opportunity for the apostolate. I remember that Saint uh, Saint uh, yesterday, Saint Nicholas Tolentino, all he could do was preach. He was a, literally a street preacher. But what a mercy of God it is, and of Mary, that by means of, of this, these radio shows now, many, many people can hear these refreshing and very timely truths. It sounds trite, but it's not. These are, these are the truths for the day. Thank you, Excellency, and we'll leave you till next time. God bless you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.